Okay, well, welcome everybody. If y'all want to go ahead and turn y'all's Bibles to Acts chapter 14. We're going to be in Acts chapter 14 today. Turn in your Bibles or turn on your phones, whatever you guys do. Um, we'll be in Acts chapter 14. Um, last week, if you remember, we uh, went through Acts chapter 13. And what we saw in Acts chapter 13 was really the beginning of this, this brand new, predominantly Gentile church in the city of Antioch. And in this city, and in the city of Antioch, this, this new church that was started, um, we saw in chapter 13, in the very midst of their worshiping, we saw the Holy Spirit himself intervene and, and tell the church to set apart for himself Paul and Barnabas to go do some missionary work. And so we, what we really see is the beginning of what uh, most people call and most people name Paul's first missionary journey. That's what we saw getting kicked off here. So it was Paul and Barnabas, and they took along a helper, the text says, uh, John Mark. John Mark, the Mark that actually wrote the Gospel of Mark, went along with them as, as their helper. Um, and so as they're making their missionary journey, we saw them come to Pisidian Antioch, which, I mean, uh, uh, yeah, Pisidian Antioch, which is different than the Antioch of the church that sent them out. They come to this uh, city named Pisidian Antioch, and there we saw Paul give his very first sermon, his first sermon that's recorded for us in the book of Acts. And we looked at that in the worship service in, in, a, in, in what appears to be very much too much detail, um, but we covered Paul's first sermon. Um, and in that sermon we saw basically God describe uh, how God has been working with the people of Israel ever since the beginning, and all of God's working with the people of Israel has been moving and working towards the coming of Christ. Everything's been pointing to the coming of Christ. And then with the coming of Christ, as Paul preached, he told people to put their faith in this Messiah, to put their faith in Christ. And he really even warned them of, of not doing that. Paul told them to put their faith in Christ, and he also warned them of, of the Habakkuk uh, 1.5 warning from the Old Testament prophet that, you know, the, the, the warning and the dangers of not doing that and the wrath of God that would come as a result in the judgment. And so the, the text told us that all of the Gentiles that heard this preaching of Paul, all the Gentiles who had been previously appointed to eternal life, believed. And those Jews who did not receive that same grace as these Gentiles who believed, um, they were hardened. And they actually ran Paul and Barnabas out of town. And the text told us that um, as they were leaving Pisidian Antioch, as they had been run out of town, they, they, they knocked the dust off their feet in protest against that city. And so they uh, begin their journey elsewhere. And that's where we're going to pick up. They, they leave Pisidian Antioch and they head to a city um, known as Iconium. And so if you guys want to, if you want to flip back, we've kind of been doing that. I think it's helpful. I like to look back at the map in the back of my Bible. And, and I just like to know where, where Paul and Barnabas are, where, you know, you can, and it doesn't hurt to glance down at the little key down at the bottom to see the mileage. I mean, in my Bible, I mean, 200 miles, I mean, they've covered that several times already. These guys are mostly walking by foot. Most of these traveling journeys on these Roman roads would have been by foot. And uh, so they're, they're putting in hundreds and hundreds of miles to share the gospel, to spread the gospel. And now, uh, in chapter 14, verse 1, we're going to find the missionaries in Iconium. Does everybody see Iconium? Um, it's just east, a little maybe southeast, I think, of Pisidian Antioch, where they were. Um, but that's where we're going to pick up here. 
Acts chapter 14, verse 1. So if you want to turn back to the text, now that you have a reference of, of where our missionaries are, we'll jump into the text. Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Acts 14, verse 1, it says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of the Jews and of the Greeks. And so again here, what we're seeing is, is what is Paul's custom when he goes into a new city? He goes into the synagogue. He goes into the synagogue, and again, he, he's given the opportunity to speak, just as he was in Pisidian Antioch. They ask him to speak, and speak he does. Um, actually, it, it seems to infer that both Paul and Barnabas were speaking this time. And uh, the text here says that they spoke, they spoke in the synagogue in such a manner that many believed. They spoke in such a manner that many believed. Now, um, at first read, you might wonder, man, did uh, Luke become an Arminian all of a sudden? I mean, what does he mean that they spoke in such a manner that many people believed as if it was, you know, in the preachers themselves and in the way they were to speak that actually produced this um, faith? You know, it can, it, can, it can sound like that at first glance. I mean, didn't, didn't Luke just describe in the very previous chapter in Acts 13, 48, that the foundation for the faith of those Gentiles was the fact that they had been appointed to eternal life? Wasn't that what the foundation of, of faith was? Now Luke says it's, it's the manner in which the apostles spoke. Uh, but all Luke here is speaking to is the means by which God saves his people. That's all he's mentioning. He's mentioning the means by which God used to bring his people to life, to save his people. Um, God uses means to, to save people. The, the means is preaching. And here Luke is just simply describing the kind of preaching that was going on uh, by Luke, I mean by uh, Paul and Barnabas. He's speaking to the quality of the apostles preaching, this, this, this quality of preaching that God was pleased to use to save people. Um, and so as, as Luke mentions the fact that this was obviously quality preaching, quality preaching that brought many people to faith, um, maybe to get you guys, uh, get y'all's wheels turning, get y'all involved, what are maybe some of the characteristics of the apostolic preaching that we've seen so far, the whole book of Acts, um, we're actually halfway through the book of Acts now, in chapter 14, there's 28 chapters, so from what we've seen now, we've seen Peter's uh, sermons by Stephen, we've seen sermons by Peter, by Paul, what are some of the characteristics that you've seen in the preaching of the, of the apostles that really um, sticks out to you? What do you think Luke's mentioning here? What do you think he's referring to as he's, as he's saying how, how good the preaching was that many believe? Scott? It seems that they were using a law to point them to Christ, mm -hmm. to reveal their sins and, and the need for the gospel. Mm -hmm. Both from Stephen to Paul specifically. Yeah. As they start, you know, in the Old Testament and work their way through. Yeah. I mean, I think that's one aspect that I've definitely seen. That was the first thing I put down was their use of Scripture. I mean, have we not seen just, I mean, every argument they're making, they're saying, oh, it's based on this text in the Old Scripture. Oh, it's this, this prophecy based on this text in the Old Testament. You know, very scripturally saturated, convicting, uh, definitely convicting uh, sermons is what we've been seeing from them. Yes, sir? I would say uh, boldness, just not wavering from the scriptures. Man, did you guys get my notes or something? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's the second point I had. Exactly. 
the boldness. Luke's referred to it several times already. We're actually going to see him refer to it again in this very chapter. But that seems to be the overarching um, characteristic of their preaching that Luke notes is the boldness. That's the word he uses, the boldness that they have. Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I have. Scripture-saturated, bold preaching. That's what God pleads. That, 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 those are the aspects of preaching that God is pleased to use to save people. Um, yeah, that, that's good. That's, that's, exactly, that's exactly what I had. Um, notice also another point here in verse 1, that the text says, um, even in these synagogues that they're going into and preaching, there's always a mixed multitude. There's always a mixed multitude. So here, as they're in the synagogue, they're preaching the gospel, um, it says that Jews and Greeks were there. Jews and Greeks were present. And so, um, as, it, as it's mentioning that this, this group of Greeks, these Gentiles who were in the synagogues, this would have been comprised of two different groups. You have uh, God-fearers and proselytes. Those would be the two categories of Gentiles that would be in these synagogues hearing the Old Testament preached and, and taught. Can anybody articulate what's the difference uh, between a, a God-fearer and a proselyte? Does anybody remember? I mean, I've just mentioned it a couple times, but um, it's just help, help, uh, helpful to make that distinction sometimes as the text mentions God-fearers. Remember Cornelius? Remember in Acts 10, Cornelius was called a God-fearer. He was in the God-fearer category. And there's a, there's a difference between a proselyte. I think a proselyte would be a God-fearer, but they would mm-hmm. be a conversion process. Yep, a proselyte would be a God-fearer. The, the distinction is the proselyte actually is more committed than the God-fearer. They took it to another level than the God-fearer. What's the level, what's the next level that they actually went to um, to become a full proselyte, fully incorporated into the people of Israel, even though you're a Gentile. Does anybody remember? It's circumcision. That's the distinction that, that's made. God-fearers, yes, would have been like Cornelius, an uncircumcised man, who, who believed that the God of the Old Testament was the true God. They, he, followed the, he followed the teachings of the Old Testament you know, as much as he could, but they didn't go as far as an actual proselyte who would actually be brought into the people of Israel, they, they wouldn't go, they weren't as committed enough to go as far as circumcision. That's usually the, the dividing line between the two. Um, but yeah, they, they both, in, in similar, they both fear the Lord, they're both called God-fearers in that they believe the Old Testament God is the true God. Um, but that's a distinction that comes up in the text um, in some places. So the, verse te- the text here tells us that many people believed, both Jew and, and Greek, um, it, it, throughout the, the preaching of the apostles, in verse 2 we have a but. Many believe, but. Verse 2 says, but the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. And so this is to be expected. This is nothing new for the apostles. Anytime you're putting off the aroma of Christ, anytime you're preaching the gospel, to some you're going to be the aroma of life, when you're preaching Christ, they're going to they're gonna either be saved by it or if they're already saved, they're going to appreciate your preaching. They're going to be encouraged by it. They're going to be um, edified by it. And as you're also putting off the aroma of Christ, there's going to be some who's going who's to take that as the stench of death. That's going to be the aroma of death to some. And so there's going to be um, opposition and uh, those who, who do not appreciate the preaching and are going to oppose you. And so that's, that's just natural. That's going to come every time. I mean, literally every time we see the apostles preaching, you're going to have both. 
You're going to have those who it's the aroma of life, those who it's the aroma of death. That's just how it goes when you're, when you're preaching the gospel. And so this is, what, this is what Luke notes, the fact that there's some rising up, embittering uh, the Gentiles to the preaching of the gospel. And now I think verse 3 is almost humorous in light of that. Um, so verse 2 just talked about how the Jews are stirring up the Gentiles to oppose the brethren, to both, uh, oppose the preaching. Now notice the reaction in verse 3 of Paul and Barnabas to all this opposition that's getting stirred up against them. Verse 3 says, due to all this opposition, verse 3, therefore, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. I think that's funny that all this opposition is rising up, which you might expect them to say, okay, well, let's move on. Um, but instead, it says, therefore, a causal statement of all this observation, the, well, the resultant of all this, op, uh, all this opposition is they decided to stay for a long time. And again, uh, like Chris said, speak boldly. Again, Luke notes the boldness and uh, reliance that they have upon the, the Lord. I think it's also um, important to note here in verse 3 that as we speak of the boldness of the apostles and their preaching, um, this isn't a prideful boldness. This isn't an arrogance. They're not out on the streets um, uh, with, the, with their nose up in the air, you know, just just wanting somebody to step up and, and have some uh, smart comment to say so they can just shoot them down and make themselves look good. That's not the boldness that they have. Luke actually mentions uh, what's behind, what's the foundation of their boldness. He says there in verse 3, they were speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord. That's the boldness that, that God loves and God will use. A boldness that isn't in your own strength, isn't in your own might. It's a boldness that actually relies on the Lord and His Spirit to do the work. That's a God-honoring boldness there, you know, which is which sometimes is hard to distinguish, and we have to check ourselves, you know, as we go and share the gospel and preach in the streets. Um, we need to make sure that our boldness isn't in our, um, in our knowledge of Scripture. You know, we think we're smarter than everybody else, or our apologetic, um, you know, argumentation. Our reliance is to fully be on the Spirit of God and for Him to save. You've got to check yourself, you know, before you go out and do these things. You want, you want God to get the credit, God to get the honor and all the glory for salvation. It's not you you know, who's able to save people, full reliance on the Lord. Mm -hmm. that, that's a, I like how Luke includes that there. Um, so going on in verse 3, this is what the Lord was doing. It says, who was testifying to the word of his grace. That's the Lord who's doing that. He's testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. And so here again, Luke gives us the reason. He gives us the very specific reason why the Lord was pleased to grant the signs and wonders to be done by the hands of these missionaries. He says uh, very specifically that he's testifying to the word of his grace. There's opposition that's coming against God's word. People are, are fighting against the, the truth of the gospel. God's defending his honor, defending his word. And he's going to testify to the reality of this gospel through signs and wonders. That's what God's doing. He's, he's testifying to, these, to the legitimacy of the, the message, the gospel message. Um, what's also interesting is that even though these signs and wonders were being done, even the signs and wonders in and of themselves do not convert. So as we, as we tried to establish before, it's not how well you can articulate you know, this message. It's not even signs and wonders that, sign, that, that, that will convert. Look what verse 4 says. So even though these signs and wonders were going on, verse 4, but the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. 
right? So even though signs and wonders were going on, the city still divided. Even though we're going to see miracles that, no, just like Jesus, that nobody could refute the, legit, the legitimacy of, they, they still were divided. They were not saved just by seeing miracles. Verse 5 says, And when an attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to mistreat and to stone them, they became aware of it, and they fled. And so here we see that the, the uh, apostles, as they're called here in chapter 14, um, here they're drawing the line. They're about to get stoned. They get word of it that the city is stirred up and they want, that they're going to stone them, and so they flee. And so now we're going to see the, the, the missionaries on the move again. So if you guys want to reference back again to your map, um, they're going to they're be on the move here. I'll just read through the next uh, few cities that they're going to go to, and you can just track along on the map and see where it is. And just notice the distances that these guys are covering predominantly by foot. Mm-hmm. These, guys are, these guys are moving long, hundreds of miles to spread the gospel. Um, verse 6 goes on to say, So they hear about this possible stoning that's going to come upon them, and they flee. It says, and they flee to the cities of Lyconia. You see Lyconia. Lyconia is actually, it's probably in, a, it's probably, uh, in all caps maybe in your map. Um, this means that it's, it's not just specifically a city. It's more of a region. Uh, Lyconia is a region that's going to include the, two, the next two cities that they go to. They go to Lystra and Derby. So they're moving east. You see they're moving southeast basically. Lystra and Derby and the surrounding regions, it says. So they're, they're hitting up more than even just these two cities. And there, verse 7 says, they continued to preach the gospel. So now if you've got an idea, you can flip back. Flip back to Acts chapter 14. Um, here we're in verse 7. But, uh, but I think it's also interesting to note, you know, as, as we go through the book of Acts, I'm going to, as much as possible, try to incorporate all the connections that Luke's making in their travels with the other books of the Bible. For instance, for instance um, these churches here um, in, in Lyconia, Lyconia, this, this, this region that includes Lystra and Derby, is actually part of a larger um, area and region, which would be called Galatia. If you remember back on your map, Galatia, it's usually um, noted farther north, but it actually comes all the way down in telling Lyconia, Lystra, and Derby, all these regions. So the book of the Galatians, the epistle of Galatians, was written, Paul's first epistle that he wrote, it was actually written to these churches that we're covering right now. So you can kind of put that in your mind as well as we're going through this text and you're seeing Paul interacting with the, the brethren and, and making disciples in these churches. These are the same people he's going to later on write the book of Galatians to. I just like to always try to keep that in mind. It really helps open up and make your understanding of even other books more full as we go through Acts. So just keep that in mind that these churches and these areas that Paul's in right now is who he's going to write the book of Galatians to as well. Um, so we, we spoke of these uh, signs and wonders that God's granting the apostles to do. Let's look at one example of, of these signs and wonders in verse 8 that they're able to do. It says that Lystra, a man who was sitting, who had no strength in his feet, lame from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man was listening to Paul as he spoke, who, when he had fixed his gaze on him and had seen that he had faith to be made well, said with a loud voice, this is Paul speaking, stand upright on your feet. And he leaped up and began to walk. Now, does this account of Paul's 
healing here sound familiar to anything we've covered already? Just in how we, just in how Luke lays out this whole um, experience here. Exactly. Sounds exactly like Peter from Acts three. I mean, in so many ways, you have this lame man that's there from birth. Um, even the language that he uses that it says here that Paul fixed his gaze on him. Same same language that that's used to Peter, and then this command to get up and walk. Yeah, we're going to see a lot of parallels um, between the, the apostolic ministry of Paul and of Peter, even, even today in, in this text here. Um, and in this, we're just really seeing Paul's calling. You know, Paul's called to be an apostle, capital A, apostle, um, in the strictest sense. And we're seeing his calling come to fruition as so much of his apostolic ministry mimics, I wouldn't say mimics, but parallels um, Peter's. You see these, these great apostles ministering the gospel in the same way. Paul had seen the risen Lord on his trip to Damascus. You remember his conversion? And he, there he had received that calling to be an apostle, an apostle to the Gentiles. Um, all of these things that are required to be an apostle, Paul had received. And, and here in these types of miracles that we're, that we're seeing, we're seeing the fact that this man had never walked in his entire life, all of a sudden miraculously being able to, to leap up and to walk. Um, this is confirming Paul's apostolic um, calling, his apostolic office that, he, that he's been given by Christ. If you want to flip over to 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, I'll show you another aspect of how this is true. 2 Corinthians 12, that's where Pastor Mill is actually preaching out of, but I don't think he's going to get this far, so I thought we might reference it. 2 Corinthians 12.12 12 says, uh, it says the signs of a true apostle will perform among you with all perseverance uh, by signs and wonders and miracles. So see what, see what Paul is able to say is the sign of a true apostle? Signs and wonders and miracles, these things that are able to be done with all perseverance. Right? And we know what Paul's doing in 2 Corinthians 12. 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's uh, comparing himself and contrasting himself to these other people who are basically claiming to be apostles. These false teachers who have come in the church in Corinth, you know, trying to redirect the people away from Paul's teaching. Paul's saying he has the signs of a true apostle, signs, miracles, and wonders. And so in all of this, we just see Paul um, confirming the fact that he is, as I say, a capital A apostle. The word apostle is used sometimes of other people, uh, maybe in a more general sense, but we see Paul with the official apostolic ministry, um, with the fact that he's able to do miracles. Um, so let's see the reaction here. Let's go on to verse 11. Here we're going to see the reaction to Paul's obviously miraculous healing of this man. Verse 11. When the crowds saw, that what, saw what Paul had done, they raised their voice, saying in the Lyconian language, the gods have become like men and have come down to us. And they began calling Barnabas, Zeus, and Paul, Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, and they wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of it, they tore their robes and rushed out into the crowd, crying and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We are men of the very same nature as you. And so what's happening here at, at the site, um, 
at the sight of this miraculous hearing, uh, healing, these people, these Zeus and Hermes worshipers, um, all they know to do to make sense out of this, what is obviously a miracle, they think the gods have come down to visit them. And they attribute uh, Barnabas to be Zeus, who most think would be uh, probably older than Paul at this point. He's not, he's not the, he would have just been more reserved. Um, and then you have Paul, who's the outspoken one. They attribute him to be the god of uh, Hermes, who's the messenger of the gods. The, the, where we get the word hermeneutics from, he's the interpreter you know, of the gods to us. They, they attribute Hermes uh, to Paul. And uh, they, they start to make sacrifices to them, basically worship them as gods. And the text told us there in verse 11, they're doing all of this in the Lyconian language. I don't know how fluent Paul and Barnabas would have been in Lyconian language. Um, but I think once they realize what's going on here, they speak up. Once they finally realize what's going on, these sacrifices are being made to them, they cry out. In essence, what they're saying is they, as they tear their robes, showing the, just the dire concern and, and, uh, and, and, and the great... Uh, overwhelming uh, issue that's going on here. They, they're crying out in essence saying, stop. Stop worshiping us because we are men just like you. That's what they're saying. And again, just it keeps going back to, to Peter in my mind, but do you remember what happened, what happened to Peter when he, in Acts 10 when he comes to Cornelius' house? Remember Cornelius has that angel tell uh, Cornelius to go and get Peter and bring him to you. He's going to bring you the message of salvation. What happens when Peter comes into his house? What is Cornelius do. Anybody remember? He bows down and starts to worship. Same thing. What is, now what does Peter do when he sees that happen? Stop, I'm a man just like you. Yeah, exactly. So it's only proper, right, that men does, does not receive worship. There's only one who's to, to receive worship, and that's God. Or maybe just down this line of, uh, line of thinking, what, ha- what, is, uh, what happens to Herod in Acts 12 Remember the people cry, oh, it's the voice of a God, not of a man. They're basically attributing to him deity. What happens to Herod? Because he does not say what Peter and... He receives it and God strikes him down. A horrible, horrible death. Josephus says that he was filled with worms and died. Yeah. Yeah, the Josephus account is actually very interesting there, the parallel. You know, this angel of death is sent to kill him. Josephus recounts that uh, King Herod saw an owl, this, this owl uh, perched up that he knew was, that he interpreted to be like this omen of, of you're done for. Of you're done for. <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting to see that account there in Josephus. Yeah, okay, so maybe one more question on, on the bowing down and worshiping. Uh, maybe this instance, uh, this instance in the boat of Jesus with his disciples, Matthew 14. You know, Jesus walks on the water, calms the sea, and uh, this is what they say, those who in the boat worshipped him, saying, you certainly are the Son of God. Now, what's Jesus' reaction to that? Does he do what Peter and what Paul do and rebuke them? Not a, there's no rebuke. How about when, when Thomas, in the book of John, um, declares to him, my Lord and my God, what is, does Jesus rebuke him? No, Jesus, Jesus receives worship. He actually commends the faith, you know, of Thomas and those who believe without seeing. There's no rebuke for that. Very interesting, isn't it, that Jesus receives worship. Only deity. Only deity is to receive worship, so it's proper. Okay, so, so Paul and Barnabas, they rightly reject this worship of themselves. 
And they go on to give a response to these Zeus and Hermes worshipers. Verse 15. When verse 15 going on, it says, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and we preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things. I think that's in a reference to these vain idols that they've made, these mythical gods. Turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. And so what we, what we see here is Paul, he begins his message here with these people slightly differently than he did, if you remember the, the, the Acts 13 sermon when he was in the synagogue. Right? These people don't have the Old Testament. They're not familiar with the Old Testament. He's got to lay a little more foundation here. He's got he's to take it a step back in his gospel presentation and he's got he's to lay the foundation of making the point that there is only one true God. These people worship many gods. They attribute gods to rain and to, you know, the messenger gods. And they have all these different gods. Paul is establishing, first and foremost, that there is only one God. That's where you start. Um, and being that Paul's ultimate foundation for truth and knowledge and revelation, all of it's from the Bible, there he quotes. In verse 15, if you see it in, all, in probably all caps, maybe italicized, He's quoting Exodus chapter 20, verse 11 to these pagans. That's where he gets this phrase from in describing this living God. It's the God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. I think it's also helpful, as we talked about in, in Acts chapter 13, when, when Paul gives his gospel presentation, he calls the people to put their faith in Christ. He calls them to believe in Christ. And we talked about how uh, repentance is obviously a necessary component, uh, component of true faith. Here, again, Paul describes uh, very hopefully what repentance is, again, without even using the actual word. But look what he says there um, in verse 15. It's a turning. Repentance is a turning from idols, from, your, from these vain things, to a living God. A repentance is a turning from your, your idols, your sin, everything you worshipped uh, before the true and living God. It's a turning from idols to God. That's Repentance. Paul goes on in verse 16. He's still, he's still trying to convince them. It says, In the generations gone by, he, speaking of this one living God, he permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And yet, he did not leave himself without a witness. In that, he did good and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and with gladness. And so here is Paul speaking to these idolaters. Um, he, he's, he's speaking of what, I, what, what seems to be the same realities that he's teaching in Romans chapter 1. Right? In Romans chapter 1, he's talking about how even nature, even the things created, all the things that God has made testify, even through man's experience, they all testify of this one true and living God. Even, even man without the scripture knows that much. Um, here he says, from nature and the things created, men can see several things. There's one true and living God. He even mentions beyond that that you can see God is merciful, God is good, and that he provides all these things to his creation, rain, food, even gladness. He provides even gladness to his creation. And I'll, I would also say even by extension of the fact that you can see God is good, by extension you now have this standard of goodness that man um, is held accountable to, the, the standard of God's goodness that, that you can see even in general revelation. That's what we call it, general revelation, the things that God can gain, uh, that man can gain just from creation.
creation. You can know things about God. Um, now the question from that is, can man, is, is what man can gain from looking out at his creation, man, the text says, can see that there's a true and living God, that he's good, that he provides um, for his creation. Is that knowledge that, that man can gain from, from creation, is that enough knowledge to be saved? Is that enough knowledge to come into a saving relationship with God and to, to have one's sins uh, washed away? Is by all these things that we just said, knowing that there's a God, knowing that he's good, knowing that he's, he's done good for his creation, is that enough? That's kind of an open-ended question. Is it? Is that enough for man no. just to know those things? No. No, thank you. Um, no, it's not enough. If it was enough, verse 15, Paul wouldn't have had to bring the gospel to them. If man could be saved just from knowing that there is a God out there and that he's a good God, um, you know, they wouldn't need to bring the gospel. But the fact is, is that they do. They do bring the gospel because these people need to have their sins forgiven. They're idolaters. Uh, they need the gospel. And so Paul's here just simply trying to reason with these people from the things that they actually know that they've obviously been suppressing. Uh, verse 18 says, And even reasoning like this, even saying these things, with difficulty, they restrained the crowds from offering sacrifices to them. So they were doing their, Paul's doing his best to reason with these people, and they're still trying to offer sacrifices to them. And it even gets worse. Verse 19 says, But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Now this isn't Jews from the Antioch that their church is in. This is that uh, Pisidian Antioch, the church that they had preached the gospel in and got run out of. And Iconium, the, the place where they were threatened with stoning, Jews came from these cities that they had preached, previously preached the gospel in, and they came and tracked them down here in Lystra, and they're stirring up the crowd against them. Verse 19 goes on to say, And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul. Having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. Now, verse 20, what a fickle crowd. You know what I mean? Let, let's worship them. Are, this is, next thing you know, they're trying to, they're stoning them. That's, there's, that's, that's how committed man-made religion, you know, that's, that's how sold off they were to their presuppositions. They, they gave them up in an instant. But verse 20 says, but, there's these buts. But, while the disciples stood around him, you know, Paul's laying on the ground, they suppose him to be dead. While the disciples stood around him, he got up. And he entered the city. Now I was just like, hold on a second. What did Paul do? He just got stoned to the point that these people thought he was dead. No signs of life. He gets up. And then what does he do? He goes back into the city. The same city. They just stoned him to death. That's amazing. That's amazing that he, that he gets up. That's the, that's the first part that's amazing. He gets up. Then he goes back into the city that just stoned him. Now, that's amazing. You know he did this bravely. You know Paul marched right back into that city that just stoned him, back into Lystra. Um, but what's going to happen is obviously, even though he bravely did enter back into the city, uh, they knew that their time in Lystra was done. Right? That was, they knew it was time to move on. And once you get stoned, it's time to move on. You know, so that's what they're going to do. They're going to take the gospel, else, uh, gospel elsewhere. If you want to turn back to your map, if you want, I'm gonna. If you want to track with them, I'm gonna read the next couple of verses that, that tells us where they go from here. Verses 20, halfway through 20, verse 20b. 
in verse 21. I'll read it to you. You can track along. This is also interesting. Notice what it says. Verse 20b says, The next day, right, Paul got stoned to the point of thinking they were, he was dead. He goes back into the city. This is happening on the next day. The next day, he went away with Barnabas to Derby. The next day after being stoned to death, he gets up and goes to Derby, which I don't know if you can tell by your maps, distance-wise, if you got the little scale there. Most say it's about 60 miles. He travels 60 miles the next day after getting stoned. So they go to Derby after they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. Um, they return to Lystra, right? Lystra, the city he just got stoned in. They return there and to Iconium and to Antioch, the cities that sent the Jews to stone them and to stir up the crowds. And so that's where they are now in Antioch, right? Notice another what I think is important um, thing that I mentioned as I read it to you. You can go back if you want. They're going to be in Antioch for a minute. Um, it says that in these cities they preached the gospel and not just that. They didn't just preach the gospel. It says they made many disciples. And I don't, I don't put those in opposition to each other. I think Paul's saying the same thing. Um, through the preaching of the gospel, what you're doing is you're making disciples. But as you're making disciples, you're not simply just sharing the gospel and that's it. You're not just leaving them to go you know, to any old church and get led down any old ministry. Discipling, that's part of the commitment of sharing the gospel, is that you're willing to a disciple and follow up and get people, in, if not in our church, in a good church. You know, that's why it's helpful. That's why we know, like, when we go to UNT, we know good, sound churches in Denton that we can point people to so they can be discipled. You know, because that goes right along with the gospel presentation is that people need discipleship as well. You know, it, it would be good to preach the gospel, to have converts, but you want them to be sanctified. You want them to learn uh, all the things. That's part of the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Is it just to, to go around preaching the gospel? Or is it, does it involve teaching them to obey all that he has commanded? Right? So here we just see Luke emphasizing everything that's entailed in, in the sharing of the gospel. It involves discipleship. Um, so, they, so they went back to these cities and continued discipleship. What they're doing, they're making the rounds. They've already been to all these cities. They're making the rounds. They're bravely returning to these, to these cities they've already preached the gospel in. And they're, and they're setting an example by doing this. Remember, they've been run out of these cities. They've been stoned out of these cities. And so they're returning to, to meet back with these newly saved Christians, these brand new disciples, and they're setting an example. They're serving as an example. And the reason I say it's an example, because look at, look at what Paul's encouragement is to them in verse 22. As Paul returns to these churches, verse 22 says he's strengthening the souls of the disciples. He's encouraging, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. That's Paul's discipleship, uh, that's, his, that's his discipleship focus there. That's his message for them. Continue in the faith, and through tribulations, you'll enter the kingdom of God. That's not, that's not what Joel Osteen says. That's not your best life now. I mean, it's completely opposite you know, and it's, and it's not surprising. He's just saying the exact same thing that Jesus said. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 16. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself 
and take up his cross and follow me. Right? Taking up his cross doesn't mean like putting on a nice gold cross necklace. Taking up your cross means you're dying to yourself. You're literally looking for this instrument of death. You're looking for what's going to kill you. You're looking for a cross to bear. That's the gospel message. Um, you know, we're not, we're not going out and preaching the gospel as dumbed down as humanly possible to make it as easy as humanly possible for somebody to repeat a prayer. That's not what we're looking for. We're looking for people who are responding to a true gospel call, those who are willing to lay down their life for Christ, who are going to come underneath the lordship of Christ. That's a true gospel presentation. You know, it's not just simply, hey, do you want to have your sins forgiven? That sounds like a good thing. I want that. You know what I mean? You're calling people to the lordship of Christ and to lay down their lives for the gospel. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a good, true, apostolic, Jesus foundation-based gospel presentation. Come die. Come die yourself and, and glorify, the God, glorify God with your life. Lose your life for the gospel. Um, so let's go on. Let's, let's notice here in verse 23 another very significant thing that, that occurs in these brand new churches that Paul and them did. They, they encouraged the churches, yes. Um, they discipled them. And look what else Paul and Barnabas did in verse 23. It says, when they had appointed elders for them in every church. They appointed elders, elders plural, in every church, singular, right? The plurality of eldership in every single church. And for, for whatever reason, this is like one of those greatly overlooked, misunderstood, not practiced ecclesiological teachings of the, the New Testament that is obvious on the face of the New Testament that every time you see um, there's never exception to the fact that there's always a plurality of eldership in the churches. Right? It's never that the CEO model that most churches, and I think it's just by tradition, you know, that there's the one guy, you know, he, does, he runs the church, he's like the CEO of this business that they call their church. You know, that's not the, help, that's not the biblical model. That's not the biblical model. You know, there's two offices in the church. There's elders and deacons. Um, I can tell you from my vast a two weeks experience that I have as an elder, this right here, um, this, this teaching is becoming one of my most favorite doctrinal teachings because God had wisdom. God knew what he was doing in setting up a plurality of eldership. There's, no, there's nothing better for the elders than to have a plurality of elders. I think that's the reason, like, you see so many elders failing. You know, these, these single pastor models, you know, they, they, they stumble, they fall into sin. It's just one of the reasons possibly, but, I mean, they're doing too much. They're called to probably, you know, teach Sunday school maybe, teach maybe two services on Sunday mornings. Now churches have Sunday night, Wednesday evening service, you know, whatever else comes in between. I mean, you wonder why the, the teaching is so minimal and so weak is that they're teaching like six different things a week. You know, what do you expect from one guy? And so they're almost just setting themselves up for failure with that type of model. You know, but that's not what the New Testament um, offers. And here we see it just explicitly. They're setting up a plurality of eldership in each church. And it's the responsibility of the church to raise up others to shoulder the load, because there is a load. Maybe that's another reason that the, the pastors don't even see or recognize or want to see that there is a load that needs to be carried and dealt with in the church. And maybe they just they don't even want to deal with most of the issues that pastors need to deal with. But, but that's what should happen. The church should build up uh, this plurality of eldership. Um, that's, what, that's what should happen, you know. Some churches that you may be aware of use like the, they even call it the Moses model, 
right? They, they say the Moses model, that's what they'll call it, but that's not helpful. Well, Moses had 70 other guys helping him judge the nation. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, that's what's so ironic about calling it the Moses model is even in Exodus 18, his father-in-law sees, this is not working, Moses. What are you doing? Get some, get some help. You know, exactly. So, it's, yeah, even in that model, you should take from the text that um, there, there's much work to be done, and it's just, it's just so helpful to have uh, a plurality of, of eldership and wisdom. Okay, so this is what they've done in these churches. They've gone back to all these churches that they preach the gospel in. They've been discipling them. They set up the churches. They, they establish eldership. And now, it's, oh, yes, Jeff, before we go on? Um, just about the whole CEO thing. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, like, a lot of the guys in church history that maybe bore more load than three senior pastor model kind of guys today. Mm-hmm. And you got Luther or Calvin teaching six to seven times a week, Spurgeon, same thing, whether it be open-air yeah. gospel presentations or whether it be a church full of people. Yeah. Um, so it kind of makes me wonder the perspective of like what accountability they maybe had to keep them from falling. I mean, I'm sure they had lots of temptations with all the fights that were fighting on so many fronts. Yeah. I mean, those guys are like the exceptions to the rule, you know. I mean, imagine what they could have done if they would have had plurality of eldership. Well, That's how I think about what it. I'm, what I'm getting at, yeah. though, is like what dynamics did they see that we're not seeing with so many people falling nowadays, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, they probably, they had so much, I mean, they had heresy infiltrating on every angle. Don't right. get me wrong, I'm just saying, like. Are you saying why it worked for them? Is that what you're saying? Why it worked for them if, if you're yeah. saying, you know, like a lot of these guys are falling because of, I mean. Yeah. You've got. You've like got I said, those guys were free. You've got Knox, you've got the Puritan, Edwards, yeah. Owens. I mean. I mean, people do it now. People pull it out. I'm just saying. I mean, you see what they went through. I mean, you talk about the depression that Spurgeon and those guys went through. I mean, yeah. it, over, it was overwhelming to them. I mean, God, yeah, God, God, he pulled it off with Spurgeon, that's for sure. But I'm just saying, those guys are exceptions to the rule. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I think they did help. Whether they wanted it or not, you know, you talk, talk about Spurgeon. He was down for like months at a time. Other, other guys were stepping up and preaching and stuff like that. I mean, they may not have had like the cookie cutter, like we're talking about, like, designated elders, but other people were, ended up helping them out, you know. Um, yeah, those guys, I don't know how, that's what I'm saying, I don't know how they did it. I don't know, I don't know how in the world they did that. I mean, that, especially, Spurgeon was preaching to thousands of people. He was, he was ministering over thousands. People were coming from all over the place to get wisdom from him. I don't know how in the world, I don't know, I don't know how to answer for that. I don't know how those guys did it. That's kind of amazing. Josh Providence. <laughs> Josh Providence. Yeah, they did Providence it. Grace. Grace Much grace. Much grace. Okay, so, um, and yeah, and so maybe we can say one more thing about that because we're really almost done. Is that, and I do think it would be okay, especially even in a new church, if there is only one elder for a time. I mean, we're just saying this is like what the apostles set up, this is what is given as the, the model, you know, the best case scenario. You know, there could be times when, you know, there is only one pastor, and, and there he'd have to be, you know, weary, like we talked about the accountability. Yeah. Now that's gone. He'd have to, I mean, so you can work these things out. You know, there's, for a time, exceptions to the rule, you know, different. I don't know if you wanted to add, but here what we see is that they were appointed by existing leaders rather than voted on by non-existent leaders. Right. Yeah, like the church. I think, yeah, I think the apostles.
apostles. I think Barnabas and Paul are the ones who did the appointing right. here. Yeah. But, but think about it. They were only with these churches for a very little amount of time. Yeah. You know, so I think there, I, I think there would have been church involvement. I think, you know, they would have wanted to know, hey, who's been, you know, who's been, uh, st- who's been doing the hard work? Who's been studying? Who's been naturally leading? You know, and these people would have, you know, they would have taken from the church of, hey, who's been ministering to you? You know, whatever. It's a it's a corporate deal, but yeah, I think like it's maybe like kind of like what they did in Deacons and Acts six. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the exactly. The spirit full of wisdom. Hey, you guys will recognize that. I mean, that was a quick exactly. deal. I mean, you had Hellenistic Jews mm-hmm. throwing a fit over the widows and how they were being treated. Yeah, and Peter's like, hey, look, we're not going to be tending tables. You guys find these kinds of guys. Yeah. Boom, they got seven done. Perfect example. Yeah, they're the church actually put forward some men, and the, and the apostles amend it. You know, so, um, yeah, that's right. That's a good example of how, how all this stuff gets worked out. So it's not always cookie cutter, you know what I mean, but we can take from the, the perfect scenario and try to match it as much as humanly possible. That's really what we want to we do. We want to put ourselves in the, in the best scenario to just be a, a, a good and healthy church. Okay, so let's finish up because we got like one minute. Um, so right here, well, so as I said, they've established these churches, and now it's time to go home. They're getting to return home to their home church uh, back in Antioch. Now, last time, you want to flip back to the map? Because here he's gonna, we're going to name about five or six cities. Um, verse 24 says, they're leaving Pisidian Antioch. That's where they're leaving. Verse 24 says, they passed through Pisidia, and they came into Pamphylia. And when they had spoken in the word in Persia, they went down to Atalia. So now they're back down to the coast. You see, it, the, they're right on the coastline of the Mediterranean, Atalia. And from there, verse 26 says, they sailed back to Antioch. That's their home church. All the, hopefully there's arrows if y'all are looking at like a map of Paul's journeys. They went all the way back to Syrian Antioch. They sailed all the way back there. That's their home church. That's the church from which they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So they're back home. They're back home at their home church, the church that sent them out. Remember, the Holy Spirit sent them out. And uh, most of the commentators say that this whole journey we just looked at, this whole first missionary journey of Paul, they say it's about one to two years. We're looking at the time frame of like 46 to 48 A.D., something around there. And that, that's, that's where we just saw this. Verse 27 says, that when they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them and how he had opened up a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they spent a long time with the disciples. So can you guys imagine uh, the stories that the Apostle Paul had to tell? I mean, could you imagine being a member of the Church of Antioch and Paul and Barnabas making it home and just being able to... Because all we've seen here, we've just seen snapshots. Luke's just been giving us like very minimal accounts of some of the things that have been happening just so we can know what was going on. But I'm sure there was a multitude of stories and things that God had done, miracles and all of these things that they had to tell the story about. It would have been quite an amazing uh, homecoming and a little missionary conference when they got back. Um, you know, I just think, like, I can't wait to, to meet Paul. You know, like, yeah, God is why we want to go to heaven. Paul's going to be there too, and he's going to tell us some amazing things that God did. He's going to walk us through some crazy things that God did through him, through his ministry. I can't, I can't wait to sit there and get to, get to rap with Paul for a little while. You know?
I don't mean rap. <laughs> Maybe rap. Paul probably knows what's up already. But, um, yeah, we get to talk to Paul, and Paul's going to tell us about all these amazing, amazing things that God did that weren't even in the Bible, you know, that we don't even know about. Um, so here we just see this church, this, this brand-new church, a church in Antioch, a predominantly Gentile church. They're really a model church plant. What have we seen from them? The brand, this is a brand-new church. This is like our age, like a year or two old probably. Uh, maybe three, actually. They, they taught, Paul and Barnabas taught for years, maybe three and a half, four years old at this point. But they've already given greatly to other churches that were in need due to a famine. They've sent out their two greatest teachers. They sent out Paul and Barnabas, their two great, like I said, that would be like us sending Pastor Emilio out here to go do mission work. I mean, these, this was a selfless church. They were willing to, to this is a selfless church here. This, this is a great example of a brand-new church that helps Jew and Gentile. And uh, here we see just their, their, their devotion to missions. You know, they sent these. When it says they sent them out, that means they financially sent them out. It doesn't just mean, oh, good luck, guys. You know what I mean? They, they made the sacrifice. They sent some people out on, a, on a, crazy, a crazy missionary journey, taking the gospel where it has never been before. You know, some of these people were hearing the gospel for the very first time. You know, he's going to speak to these pagans. So, you know, this church of Antioch, it's going to continue on. Like I said, all the, all the fo- we'll get back to the church in Jerusalem next week, actually. But from that point on, like, all the focus is leaving the church in Jerusalem. The church in Antioch, Paul's church, is going to be the center. It's going to be the missionary center focus of the early church. This church is going to be our, our prime example of, of a biblical model of a church that we can, that we can look to. So... Yeah, that's, that's it. Amen. Let's pray and we'll go to worship. Well, Father, Father, my prayer is that um, with all the grace that we can find, God, that we would be as much like this, this church and this example of this church in Antioch that you've, that you've placed before us. Father, that we would be a giving church as they were, God, that we would, that we would care about the the, the, the lost world that we would care enough God to sacrifice and to send Father we pray that you would raise up that your spirit would, would call out men and women in this church to go out and, and share the gospel God and to do missions and to make that, that sacrifice Father we know none of these things are beyond your power God so we pray that you would put us in a place that we would be willing Father we pray that, that we would be a model church as well in this area that when people saw Heritage of Grace they would see a, a light a light for the gospel a very God honoring and scripture saturated church who comes underneath your word and that as, as our authority God we pray that we would be an example in this place in this city God we pray that you would bless Pastor Emilio as he speaks today God bless his preaching we thank you God for bringing him back to us for restoring his health so that he can preach. God, we thank you for that. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.